And as you take up the Word of God, please turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15 for our Thanksgiving sermon. We are not in our regular series. And uh, we pick up uh, a consideration of John 15 verses 8 through 10. But I will read from verse... um, I will read from verse 1. So I will begin the reading at verse 1, and we will read the first 10 verses. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible Word. These are the words of our God, and they are infallible, holy, and true. Let us hear them that way. This is Jesus speaking. I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me... Ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy might be full. We'll leave it there. Amen. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Let us pray now for a blessing on the preaching. Our Father and our God, We come now to the preaching of the word, and this is a word that we need much light. And so we ask, Father, give light. Give light to the minister that he may preach through the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Give light to the congregation that they may receive the light of Christ as it dawns upon them in this word. Would you help both minister and member to Together, give glory to God in their respective roles now. The minister as he preaches the will and mind of God and the members who will now receive it by faith. Father, we pray that what is preached would be true to the word and that we would understand better the love of God for us and the delight of God in those that delight in him. And so, Father, as we come now to the preached word, we pray that you would bless the preacher, that you would now speak, Father, that your servants would hear. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, many parents have an unconditional love for their children. They have an unconditional love for all their children. And yet there are some children that they love unconditionally that cause grief to their parents. They love them, but yet their heart is often grieved by their child. And yet the same parents with the same kind of unconditional love, will find in the same family among siblings another child, a child that does what pleases the parents. And the parents with the same unconditional love, rather than grief, 
finds delight in this other child. Though they love the children the same, the, the, the love that they receive in return is different. And so the parent delights in one and finds grief in the other. And this is what we have to recognize when it comes to love, right? We can love, we can have an object of love that can either cause grief or cause us delight. For us tonight, then, as the people of God, we have to ask ourselves, what kind of child of God ought we to be? The kind of child that the Father delights in or the kind of child that the Spirit is grieved by? You see, there, is, there are many children of God and they're all loved by God. And, and many of them, uh, you know, all, many of them recognize and all true children of God obviously have had Christ die for them. But yet, in their conduct, in their behavior, some children cause uh, uh, God to delight in them more. And I'll, un- I'll unpack what that really means later than other children who tend to be a grief to the Lord and grieve the Holy Spirit. And as we walk, as Christ's disciples, our calling is, right, all of us who have received the pure, unmerited, gracious love of God, arising from the table of the Lord, out of thanks for such grace, our desire ought to, ple- ought to be to please God. That we would abide in the love of God in that way, by pleasing Him, to keep His commandments and bear much fruit to the glory of God. And these are the things that our text teaches cause an outpouring of God's love and pleasure upon the child of God. These are distinctions that are often not made in the Christian church today. And these are distinctions vital for our walk in godliness and holiness. And so that will be the substance of our sermon is to understand the love of God in these ways. And so our theme will be that we, and this is simple, must seek to please God. We must seek to please God through Christ. And we'll consider this theme under three heads. First is to understand God's love of complacency. And that uh, we'll uh, understand a bit better, boys and girls, a little later. It's not uh, that God is complacent in the way that we speak of it today. It's a love of delight. That's what that older term means. So we'll have to understand what it means that God has a a love of delight in his people. Second is to abide in the Father's love. And third is to rejoice in Christ's joy. First, let's consider God's love of complacency or delight. Well, the text we are in can be summarized by uh, this one theme, which is to abide or remain or dwell in Christ. Right? It's a text that speaks of our life manifesting our union, our abiding in Christ. This is, as you probably know, an extraordinarily rich text, and the entirety of its matter is outside of the scope of our theme tonight. What I want to focus on particularly is on verse 10, which has confused many of us. If you keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandment and abide in his love. What does it mean to abide in Christ's love, which is equated to abide Christ abiding in the Father's love? After all, we might, and we might have too shallow a view of the love of God, right? You would say something like this. Is the love of God just not, is it not just something that we have, right? Don't we just have the love of God? Why is there an active voice here then, pastor? What is it doing here? Saying we must do something, we must keep the commandments to abide in the love of Christ, which is the love of the Father, of course. You know, to our 
often modern Protestant and Reformed sensibilities that sounds a bit like works righteousness, right? Keep my commandments and then God will love you. That we can make God love us by keeping his commandments. And you know, as you heard this morning, that's utterly false from the rest of the scripture. We love him only because he first loved us. We can't keep the commandments to make God love us. You heard that even in our preparatory service. But where Reformed Orthodoxy really shines is in understanding this threefold love of God, which are really three chords or three degrees of the singular love that God has for his elect. So let's distinguish between this threefold love of God to make better sense of the scriptures, scriptures like this. Um, the three chords of God's love, which is singular, really, uh, they're often um, summarized this way, and you might want to take notes on this, boys and girls. First is the love of benevolence. Second is the love of beneficence. And third is, and what we are considering tonight, which is the love of complacency. And many of you, I know, have Francis Turretin and his institutes. He distinguishes these in Institutes 3.20.5. But let me give you an overview real quickly so that you can better make sense of the scriptures of this threefold love. First, there is the cord of love, which is called his love of benevolence. This is the love in the will of God to do good to his elect from eternity past, from before we were. Uh, you'll see that will in places like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is a, a decree from before the world began, right? It didn't begin with the world. It began before the world. God had love set on the elect, the elect world, to give his son for them. That's the love of benevolence. Second, the second chord of love is the love of beneficence. And sometimes these are collapsed together, benevolence and beneficence. But I think it's helpful to distinguish them. This is God's love of benevolence manifested and poured out to us in time. Uh, you saw that this morning, right? In Isaiah chapter 50. In time, Christ willingly, out of love, gave himself for us. Revelation 1.5, you heard in the preparation service, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. There is nothing you and I can do to make Christ do that for us. He loved us. He did it for us willingly. And in time, he comes to shed his blood for us and, uh, and wash us of our sins. So that was benevolence and beneficence. Third, and this is what we're focusing on, which is the love of complacency. Now, the word complacency, I understand in English, has changed, but we retain its sense theologically when we speak of a love of complacency. So theologians speak this way even today. And you might want to instead, boys and girls, call it something like God's love of delight or a love of being pleased, right? He loves that you please him. He loves that you delight in him and delight him with obedience. It's the delight right, that we take in that child I spoke of that seeks to please us and not grieve us. One way you can understand these species of love and how they are distinguished is in our love of, for God and God's love for Jesus. And you'll see these things distinguished. You know, is your love for God the love of benevolence or beneficence? No, you can't add anything to the blessedness of God, right? You love God simply because you delight in God, right? You delight in God. You're not giving anything to God. You're not benevolent. You're not a benefactor to God. That's not your love for God. 
We delight in the Lord our God. That goes back to our Psalm of the Month, Psalm 112, that if we love God by delighting in him and fearing him, then we would delight to do as well, even as Jesus did. And Jesus Christ in both natures unlocks for us this doctrine in distinguishing these three kinds of love. First, you see it in his divine nature, right? What kind of love did the eternal Son of God enjoy from the Father? It's of complacency, of delight, right? He always delights in his Son, and the Son always delights because the God, because God, the Son, has no need of benevolence or beneficence from the Father in the divine nature. And even as the servant of the Lord, right? What kind of love do you most see the Father show Jesus Christ in his humanity? It is the love of delight. That's what you mostly see the Father show uh, the Son, right? Consider John ten seventeen. Now you can make sense of words like these. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. See, Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, never made the Father love him. But in the incarnation, you see that love of complacency on the Son. My Father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. You think of this morning. My Father loves me because I did not hide my face from shame. I gave my back to the smiters. I did not hide my face from spitting. And my Father delights in me because I always do the things that please Him. Or when the Father says of Jesus, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That word pleased is actually the key word for this kind of love, which is why it's sometimes called a love of pleasure, not the love of pleasure, but a love that is of pleasure, of being pleased in another. And it is this pleasing of God that we are to grow in in our sanctification. It is this pleasing of God that is the abiding in the love of God of our text. Remember, boys and girls, this should be a memory verse for you, right? In Hebrews 11, verse 6, what do we read? Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. There's a way to please God. There's a way to grieve God. And so what we grow in is this love of pleasing God, that God would show us His love of being pleased in us. That's what the Christian has to hold dear. And this is what the Christian is driven to, right? Our standing with God never changes. We have the love of God, right? We've, we've seen this here. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you, right? So he's saying, you have been cleansed by me, but now abide in the love of God by keeping the will of God. What the Christian must hold dear and be driven to is that as we grow in our sanctification, God is more delighted in us. God is more delighted in us. Now that statement might shock you if you come from two theological camps, uh, either antinomianism, where God's law is immaterial, or hyper-Calvinism, where it doesn't really matter, right? These two streams have fought against the love of complacency in God. And if you have, and this is a very helpful book, uh, it's a modern book, uh, Dr. Mark Jones, he has his book on antinomianism, um, and that is a very helpful book to understand the reasons why antinomians and also hyper-Calvinists have no uh, place in their theological system for the love of complacency. You know, you can imagine with the hyper-Calvinists, right, those who deny a general love of benevolence to all men, right, those, that thing that we call common grace sometimes or common benevolence, hate to see such distinctions in the love of God. 
but what we would say is that while God is benevolent in a general way to all men, he only finds his delight, his pleasure in those that are in Christ. And he only gives his love of beneficence, that is, to give Christ for those who are the elect. And so the Reformed Orthodox, like Turretin and Rutherford, have contended to maintain God's love of complacency, not because it's an interesting theological distinction, but because the Scripture speaks of it, and because it is vital that we would understand that we ought to please God by way of obedience, that we would receive the commendation, right? Is there not a commendation in the Bible, something like this, well done, good and faithful servant? God is more pleased with some of his children than others. And if we had the desire of the child that ever wants to please God, what a boon that would be to understand this theological distinction and how it would drive us, right? That by faith, we would please God. Be amazed, friends. Be amazed, friends, that this is even found in God's relationship to the incarnated Son. What do you remember of Luke 2, 5 to 8? I told you this morning we'd return to it. Luke 2, verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. See, you can increase, if the Son of God incarnated in his humanity could increase in favor with God, do you not think you can as well? In his humanity, as Jesus increased in wisdom, he increased in favor with God. Now, this is very important because Jesus never sinned, mind you. And yet, he increased in favor with God. As his obedience was manifest more and more and more in the things that he did, right? As it comes to that crescendo where he did not withhold his back from the smiters, more and more he increased in favor with God, this love of complacency increased. How great the delight the Father had for Jesus at his cross most of all. Therefore doth my Father love me because I lay down my life. Obedient, as you heard this morning, even unto death. How the Father delighted in this. John eight twenty nine. And he that sent me is with me, and the Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. This is what will make sense of so much scripture for you, beloved. Consider Proverbs 11.20. But such as are upright in their way are his delight. Those who are upright in the way are his delight. Where does this delight come from? I think this is what's most helpful if you understand this. It comes from the internal delight of God, that God delights in himself. Now, if you think of what sanctification is, boys and girls, isn't it increasing, 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 and a restoration of the image of God that was defaced and marred in us, that we become more like Christ, who is the very imprint of God. And so this delight that he has in his people is as they become more the image of God through their sanctification, he delights in his own reflection back to himself. And so this is where that love, that delight increases. God delights in himself and he delights then in the image of God that is strengthened in us and made more pure and refined. And that's why he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Because Jesus Christ is the very radiance and image of God. 
This is why the Father delights in the Son and in the Holy Ghost, and the Holy Ghost delights in the Son and in the Father, and the Son delights in the Father and in the Holy Ghost, Trinitarian love. God delights in Himself. And what you have to see is, this is necessary because God is delightful. What we don't often realize God is the most blessed being of all. He is most radiant. And if there's anything you ought to delight in, it is God. And as we are conformed to the image of God in our sanctification, His delight in us grows. Not an internal change in God, right, who doesn't change, but an external pouring out of His pleasure and His favor upon us by way of His Spirit. Charnock put it this way, the more likeness we have to him, and this might sound blasphemous if you didn't, this is why I'm quoting, I rarely quote theologians, but I think you might think this is blasphemous, so let me put it, let me cite Charnock. The more likeness we have to him, the more love we shall have from him. Now you might think that's blasphemous, anti-gospel, but only if you cannot distinguish between the threefold love of God. John 14, 21, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. You see, he that keeps the commandments loves Christ, and he that loves Christ shall be loved of my Father. This is one of the proof texts for the love of complacency because it ties together uh, a pleasing God, he that has my commandments and keeps them into an outpouring of love from God in delight. This is not electing love. This is not atoning love. This is the love of complacency, the love of delight. Here's the thing, friends. Maybe you need to think of it this way. If our guilt were removed only and he did not sanctify us, could he delight in us? Could he still delight, right? Even though the guilt is gone, could he delight in those that walk as heathens, that those who walk as reprobates? Could he have friendship with us if we love the world? No, because the Bible says friendship with the world is enmity with God. We know there is real displeasure from God to us when we are friends with the world. We know it, sin displeases us, even in the Christian. And he even chastens us, though out of love. But he is displeased by our sin. And his love of benevolence and beneficence are not removed in any way. But his love of complacency is what is diminished. The love of John 14.21 and the love of our text, the 10th verse, is not poured out upon us when we do not walk faithfully before God by the Spirit's help. So with all of that background theologically under our belt, we can better tackle our second heading, which is abiding in the Father's love. Verse 10, if ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, I think you understand what he means when he says, if you keep Christ's commandments, you will abide in his love. The point of contact is that Christ, as Christ kept the Father's commandments and abided in his love, that love of delight, we are to do the same, which shows us that this is a love of complacency. Now, the word abide, as you may well know, means to remain or dwell in. That word is the theme of this text. It's all throughout. Even in verse 11, when Christ says that his joy may remain in you, the word there is the same word for abide. But our translators chose remain. So it's all throughout here. It's the word, that, especially if you read it in the Greek, that just pops out at you. Abide, 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 abide. 
So how is it that this text shows us that you are to abide in the love of Christ? Our Lord Jesus says, keep my commandments. The Lord, you heard this in Psalm 112, that the commandments express the Lord's will. And when you delight in the Lord's will, the Lord delights in you. Right Here's the one that delights to do the things that please me. Now, don't you think God smiles on that? Here is one that delights, even if it comes at a cost, as it came at a cost to Jesus Christ, as you heard this morning, wants to keep my will. And this is, again, where that distinction between the two kinds of children come in, right? Yes, I love this one, but oh, how I delight in this one, right? And that's the kind of child that we are called to be as you rise from the table. And the point of contact is, again, that as Christ kept the Father's commandments and abided in his love, we are to do the same. We are to do the same. You know, it's so interesting that the devilish lie always comes from the accuser, right? That the commandments are a burden to bear. That the commandments will keep you from delighting in God, right? And that God doesn't really delight in you. And so why keep the commandments anyway? But it's so interesting that John, right, moved by Christ's words here undoubtedly, writes what in his first epistle? You think this is the same human instrument, By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not what? Grievous. 1 John 5, 2 and 3. The commandments of God ought to be your delight, beloved. And what could motivate you better? What could motivate you better? You know, we're not motivated to try to be saved by them. I'll say that again. But what would motivate you better than knowing that God is pleased, that God's face shines, that God is delighted, that Jesus Christ, our Savior, is pleased, and it pleases our Father in heaven, that it doesn't grieve the Holy Spirit, right? What's the opposite, right? We often hear of grieving the Holy Spirit. What would the opposite? To delight the Holy Spirit, wouldn't it? Right? That when we follow the commandments of God by the Spirit's own help, mind you, we bring delight In fact, John wrote this earlier in his epistle, right? He that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. A sign that you abide in Christ is your keeping of the commandments by the Spirit's help. You are to follow the steps of Christ that the Father delighted in. First John, I'll, I'll use John again. I thought it was so interesting to see the bridge here in the same apostle who writes this. First John 2, 3 and 6, 3 to 6. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. Throughout the scripture, you find that God is pleased with those who walk as his son walked. The one who always did that which pleased the father. This is your calling, beloved. To be well-pleasing in God's sight, to abide in his love of complacency, to have him more and more pleased with you as Christ is formed in you more. Boys and girls, you remember the first question of the Shorter Catechism. What is the answer? What is the chief end of man? What is your chief end? Let me put it personally. Is it not to glorify God 
and to enjoy him forever. So what does Christ tell you, child of God, in verse 8, back in John 15? Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. Here is your chief end, children. It is to glorify God. How will you do it to bear much fruit? He says, so shall ye be my disciples. This is the marker of the disciple of Christ. The one who communes with Christ is one who bears much fruit. You know, you're called to be his disciples. What does that mean? We often make that a technical term. But one of the the things that a disciple is, is a learner. Right? That's what a disciple is, is one who learns. What is one of the primary lessons Christ teaches you? How to glorify God and how to enjoy him forever. What is his primary lesson in our text? Bear fruit, keep God's commandments. Walk in this world even as I have walked. And again, the way to keep that, keep that heart of the disciple is to keep at the forefront of your heart's desires that this pleases God. That you will abide in his love of complacency. That he will communicate his love and pleasure and friendship towards you. That he will communicate one day, right? This is the heart of the born-again believer. It longs to hear the commendation, well done, good and faithful servant. And God is a good father who will give, it's astonishing, right? He says to us, when you have done your duty, you have done all that you are called to do, you just say, you are an unprofitable servant. We have done what is our duty. And yet, at the same time, God is gracious. He says, you don't be high and lifted up in that. You just do what you're supposed to. But one day, I will commend you. And I will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You don't grow haughty in yourself. You long for the commendation from me. My love of complacency, my love of delight in you. And this is what the, uh, the child of God sees as everything to them now. This outpouring of love is everything. The child of God does care that the father is, this is where you have to get things straight in your walk, right? The the child of God does care that the father is displeased with their sinfulness. But your thoughts ought to be more captivated with this thought, that you can please God, that God is delighted in you, that God is pleased in you. And so you are more taken up, children of God, as you arise from the table with the contrary question, How may I please God? How may I please God? You see, this is what defines the Son of God incarnate, isn't it? Christ never displeased the Father. He had no interest in sin, right? The tempter comes and Christ shows, I have absolutely no interest in sin at all. But why does the Father delight in the Son? Is it primarily because the Son never sinned? No, it is because I always do the things which please Him. It's always I do those things that he calls for in the word of God. And yes, half the equation is don't sin. But the primary thing is let me walk and bear fruit for God. Let me keep the commandments of God. And this is how you and I must walk in the world. What pleases God, let me do that. Even if, and this is what we saw this morning when our Lord Jesus Christ, right, despised the shame. Even if it displeases men, I don't care. It pleases God. And I will despise the shame of men for the joy that is set before me. Well done, good and faithful servant. And so, 
This will have profound implications in how you worship, how you live, what you do. If your mind is fixed on the question, how may I please God to abide in his love? You will not care so much about the world and the, the, your peers, boys and girls, girls. And that is a glorious, freeing feeling to ever walk for what pleases God. But how, you might ask, can we do this? How can Christ's disciples find the power to please God? And the answer throughout this text is only by a vital union with Christ. Right? That's what's precious about this text uh, and its connection to communing with Christ this morning at the table. Verses 4 and 5, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Okay, he says, in order to glorify God, right, later on, as we've heard, you must bear fruit. But he says to you, the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do what? Nothing. So first of all, you cannot please God at all if you are not in Christ by faith. This is where you have to begin, especially if you're an unbeliever. Verse 6, if a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Without faith, you cannot please God. Without faith in Christ, you cannot please God. You will instead be cast into the fire of hell and be burned. But if you are in Christ, faith as the instrument of our union to Christ, then where your head is, where Christ is, you will be also and you will be fed by Him and you will be nourished. Believers, even in your vital union with Christ, you seek nourishment to bear fruit. And this is a use of what you did at the table this morning, right? If without Him you can bear no fruit, what you do is you plead with the Lord that the sacrament this morning, even as it is the fruit of the vine, right? And what imagery there is in that? It's a picture that you are connected to Christ the vine. And by feeding me, feeding me on yourself, Lord, I can bear much fruit. And you must believe that by faith, that you can please God. And He Himself gives you the power to do it. I hope that when you came to the table, beloved, part of the reason why was not just to share in some sentimentality, but that you might please God yourself, that you might be fruitful to God. You need to pray this week and, and days coming forward until the next communion and beyond, that you would be able to receive grace from the supper and live a life that is well-pleasing to God. God answers such prayers richly. He conveys in the sacrament grace to such a holy end. Plead with God, Lord, will you take the sacrament I've partaken of? Will you take the body and blood of Jesus and make me fruitful, abiding in Him? The Holy Spirit communicates to us through faith the spiritual benefits of Christ and makes us fruitful. In verse 7, he says we ought to pray. If we abide, if ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will and it shall be done unto you. What is it that Jesus is speaking? What do you think? Let me ask the question this way. What do you think Jesus is speaking of these things that you ask of given the context in this text. What do you think primarily he's talking about? Is he talking about Ferraris and mansions? Palaces? No. The context indicates he is primarily speaking of being fruitful, of fruitfulness to God, of pleasing God with our lives, 
I think it's a great indictment on our heart that that's not where our heart goes. When we read a text like, uh, if ye abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what ye will and it shall be done unto you. Our heart doesn't immediately go, oh, I can please God if I ask for it. Isn't that a great indictment on us who profess from the youngest age that our chief end is to glorify God? To seek from God the blessing of Hebrews 13.21. Right? This is the benediction. It's a blessing. It comes to us from God. That the God of peace would make us perfect in every good work to do His will, working in you that which is what? Well-pleasing in His sight through... Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Here is a great prayer, one greatly answered by the Lord. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hears us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. 1 John 5.14 Is it not his will that you be fruitful? that you walk according to his commandments, that you be well-pleasing to the Father. It is. How often do you pray? How often do you pray this? Not just the things that we want in this world, or even the fourth petition, which is number four and not number one, give us this day our daily bread. But how often do you pray that I would give God his desire, that he would delight in me all the more, that he would be glorified in my life, I was thinking and meditating on our prayer meetings, um, mostly familiar with the Wednesday night one. I trust it's the same on Thursday. And to me, the sweetest times in the prayer meeting is when our men get on their knees, so to speak, and pray in this way, that God, would you make me fruitful? Would you make us fruitful? Would you make our lives a shining testament to the glory of God? You know, it's good and fine to pray for our physical needs, but uh, when the Spirit moves men, He especially moves men to pray that they would glorify God with their lives, that they would remove sinfulness and that they would walk in holiness, that the Lord would revive their spirits and cause them to walk as Christ walked. This is what true revival always looks like, a people who want to do what pleases God. And that's what's truly glorious in prayer and what is often neglected by us. So many of us have a zeal, we say, for God. But how often do we have a zeal to pray that we would be walking in a way that is pleasing to God? That we would enjoy God's love of complacency. So I would say, use, you know, I think what could be helpful for you to see, you know, as vine and branches, this analogy, right, is to see the ordinances of God, especially the supper, as a kind of spiritual sap, right, that brings nourishment and gives you the grace to do it, to abide in the vine. And then you will enjoy and rejoice in the love of the Father as you glorify him by walking as Jesus walked. And so let me conclude our time with our final heading, with that understanding before us, uh, rejoicing in Christ's joy connected to the theme of this love of complacency or love of delight is actually something that makes a lot of sense now. Christ motivates us by revealing in verse 11 why he has pressed this duty upon us. These things have I spoken unto you. Why? That my joy, you might say, that my delight might remain in you, that your joy may be full. Now you understand. Christ seeks to delight in you. 
He says, would you do this? Would you bear fruit? Would you follow the Lord? That I, would you bear fruit that I might have an occasion to rejoice in you? Is this not a motivation for you? Christ says, bear fruit. I will give you the power to do it if you seek me for it, that I might rejoice in you. That I might delight in you as the Father ever delights in me. Poole, actually, um, Matthew Poole, has some insight into a definition of joy in this way. Joy is nothing else but the satisfaction of the reasonable soul in its union with an object which it loved and desired. Joy is nothing else but the satisfaction of the reasonable soul in its union with an object which it loved and desired. Christ's joy in you is found especially when he seeks his work in you, beloved. Your obedience, your walking as he walked. Whose work is it? Is it not the refiner's work? It's the refiner's own work, and so it's his own joy. His joy is upon you when he sees what he desires of you manifest in you. Could we ever really buy the antinomian thesis when we understand how Christ himself delights in our obedience to his commandments? Never. When we chafe at any of his commands, when we know his delight, when we follow them, uh, let me say this this way, would we chafe at his commands? Would we ever chafe at his commands if we knew that he delights in us when we follow him? Would we not then see why we would be motivated to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and follow him, knowing that he rejoices in those things? He further exhorts us in this beloved in another profound way. He says that if I rejoice, I will have you rejoice as well, that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. Our joy should be found where? I think, again, we're so far removed from our God's heart, aren't we? Ought our joy not to be Christ's joy? The things that delight him ought to delight us. The things that he hates we ought to delight. This is why, uh, uh, for instance, David says that he hates wickedness and he hates sin because these are the things that God hates, right? If we ought to find our joy in Christ's joy, this should be obvious to us. Our children should know this, but it's something that is too far from us at times. We ought never want to grieve Christ and his spirit. We ought to always please him in the spirit. And we will have joy in that. We ought to believe that, that our joy would become full if Christ's joy is in us. You know, it's the case that spiritual melancholy often comes to those who flee Christ's commands. That's understandable. Where's Christ's joy in them, right? Where's that love of complacency? Christ has a love for them. But where's that love of delight for you? Right, And of course then, as the joy of the Lord is diminished, your joy is reduced as well. And so, this is not the only reason for spiritual despondency or melancholy, mind you, but it is something to investigate when the joy of the Lord seems so far from us. This is why David says, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Right? You have to ask yourself in spiritual melancholy, Am I like Jonah, fleeing from the pathways of God? You know, it's so interesting that in obedience, like with Christ, what's so interesting in the Bible is that many who suffer in obedience have joy. 
And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing what? That they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. They suffer, but they have joy. And oftentimes following the Lord is that way, isn't it? It might come at some cost in this life. And yet we rejoice that we were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And you really think of it this morning. That we are counted worthy to suffer shame for the one who said that he did not turn back from shame and spitting himself. Our joy will come from Christ's own joy that we, his disciples, were faithful. Don't you think Christ rejoices that when we suffer for his cause, when we suffer, you know, when the commandment of God comes, right? The word of the Lord says, maybe it's something even as simple as this, thou shalt not steal. And yet your employer says, you either do what I say, rip off our client, or you lose your job. And you say, I am counted worthy to suffer for Christ's sake, even if it costs me my job. Do you not think that Christ rejoices that his love of complacency is on you during that time? And he fills you with his own joy. Well, to know all of this would also cause you not to despise the Lord's correction either. Isn't this what the scripture says? My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father the son in whom he what? Delighteth. Proverbs 3 cited from Hebrews 12. Or Hebrews 12 citing Proverbs 3. Why does he correct you? You need to look on it this way, that he might delight in you, that when your obedience comes, his love of complacency would be upon you. That's why he chastens you. Could he delight in the son that is wayward? No. And so he wants to delight in you, believer. And sometimes he chastens you for your sin because of that, that he would delight in you all the more and that you wouldn't be that wayward child. Right? This is why we rejoice when the Lord chastens us. Okay, he doesn't want me to be that son that grieves him. He wants me to be the son like the Lord Jesus Christ that delights him. And so when you're under the Lord's hand of correction, see its intended end, that you would be conformed to Christ's own image, the son in whom the father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So the question comes, what shall we render to the Lord for all his benefits to us? Safe and secure eternally? through Christ's obedience, through Christ uh, pleasing the Father, you and I ought to live, however imperfectly, a life that testifies on the whole out of thanks to God that we desire to see Christ rejoice over our life, that our joy may be full, that we would have the love of complacency poured on us. And on this communion day especially, may the Lord move you to have such a heart. And may you all then abide in the complacency, the love of complacency, of Christ's love. Amen. Please rise for prayer if able. Glorious God and Father, uh, it astounds us that you would take pleasure in sinners like us. It astounds us that you would send your Son to die for us and to suffer for us and that you would have delight in us in this life that as Christ is formed in us more and more, that we would grow in favor with God, that we would have the image of God more, um, more uh, that we would be conformed to that image more and more, 
in this life? Would you cause us to be motivated by that? Would you cause that to be the wind in our spiritual sails? That we would know that we can please God through faith in Christ. That by His power, that as we abide in Him, we might follow the commandments. That we would bear fruit that would come to the glory of God. Oh Lord, give us this heart because this heart is far from us. Even when we think on our salvation, we are often um, so miserly. We often think of it as, oh, okay, I am able to now go to heaven. Uh, praise be to God. And we don't think that our life out of thanks, our reasonable service, oh God, as you have told us, is to live a life of fruitfulness, of bearing fruit to the glory of God. And yes, the enjoyment of God as well. So would you cause your people who have partaken of Christ, especially this morning in the supper, to have the spiritual sap by way of the sacrament, to live a life pleasing to God, that Christ's joy may be in us and that our joy may be full in him. We praise you for Christ our Savior and that these things are not things for our salvation, but the fruits of them. And we rejoice now in the hope of the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.